Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. Tom Syverson is a writer. He is the author of the recently released Reality Squared on reality TV and left politics, just out from Zero Books, which I highly recommend to my listeners. And he is also a contributor to various outlets, including Splice Today, Paste, Quartz, and recently The Bellows, a piece that we'll be coming back to later on. So thanks for coming on, Tom. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Um, so I kind of wanted to just try to uh, give my own characterization of what I sort of understand your project to be in general terms and what I see as kind of an interesting paradox, productive paradox about it, which is sure. that I think you're, you're doing a kind of materialist analysis of culture, which is a tradition that we could take back to figures like Lukács and the Frankfurt School and through someone like F Frederick Jameson. But what's interesting about the particular way that you're approaching it and what you're identifying about our present moment is that you're doing a materialist analysis that attempts to be appropriate to an increasingly dematerialized economic reality. Mm. Um, so in other words, you're um, trying to pursue a line of criticism in which aesthetics is understood to be not simply a reflection, a sort of superstructural reflection of a deeper material base, but imbricated at all points in the material mode of production. But at the same time, this mode of production is itself, as you argued in this Bellows piece, as well as the book, uh, increasingly abstract. So I'm curious if that seems like a reasonable characterization of what you're trying to do and just what you think about that sort of paradox implicit in it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a fantastic summary of what I've been trying to get at or what I've been trying to just, um, I don't know, work through um, because it was kind of a, um, a contradiction in my own writing or my own thinking. And it was something that they, they pointed out at the publisher um, when they were like reading it and deciding whether to publish it with them um, in that kind of like parts of it are critiquing materialism. And then it kind of always circles back to materialism anyway. Um, and so it's difficult because we, you know, if you're um, theoretically inclined, particularly if you're kind of steeped in um, Marxian thought and, uh, and leftism and stuff like that, you're going to always Kind of speak the language of materialism and there is something kind of inescapably use, useful or insightful about it um but uh, and there is a desire to apply it to our kind of our, our current moment um but at the same time um the kind of objective observations that i have about um our world our, our world about the way the economy is uh working about just the the uh political dynamics that we have um are very much the opposite of very, very much dematerialized um, that, um, uh, you know, the, the role of finance, the role of cognitive labor, the role of um, uh, 
you know, aesthetics and marketing and things like that have brought us to a place where it is very much not a an economy of concrete commodities or or um, kind of like industrial production. Um, it's very much uh, it's very much driven by something different and more immaterial and more um, more destabilized. And that could be I, I I tried to approach this question in a kind of agnostic way, um, meaning that it could be a very very bad thing, which is the way it's typically characterized. I think like of um, how uh, how re- reality is so uh, fractured and how finance is so fictitious, you know, the, the classic kind of like example of fictitious cap or vocabulary of fictitious capital and like a uh, phantom capital and things like that. Um, but I at least wanted to gesture at the fact that it doesn't need to be a bad thing um, is that it can just mean that it's a new way of looking at political economy or it's a new way of um, looking at the way uh, that politics needs to be conducted in the interest of um, class priorities. So, um, so yeah, it is a bit of a, a, a paradox and a bit of a contradiction. And it was something I was at least attempting to, it was something I kind of alighted upon, I think when I was writing the book. Um, and then it was something I tried to expand a little bit on in the, the piece that I wrote for the Bellows recently. Yeah, and this just seems really important to me because in a sense, if you look at, as you do in the Bellows piece, um, but also in the book, the the sort of failures of various, um, you know, attempts at articulating political alternatives, whether on the right or the left, um, they have often tended to, you know, revert to a kind of Fordist nostalgia where instead of confronting this abstract, dematerialized, financialized economic reality head on, they sort of try to posit some kind of possibility of, of returning to a, um, a, a prior mode of economic reality that is somehow in retrospectively seen as, I mean, it's sort of paradoxical in a sense because um, it's almost as if because that economic reality was the condition of a certain political possibility, um, the political proposal is to, it, it sort of gets it backwards, right? Because in a sense, the political proposal is to return to that economic reality in some way so as to then be able to do politics more effectively. Um, but, you know, the, the problem with this is that, you know, you have to do politics, you know, if you do think that, say, increasing the share of manufacturing in the American economy is, um, is a good thing or is important, um, you know, and we can remain agnostic on that particular policy question, but, you know, there's some way that that becomes a kind of attempt to actually circumvent politics, right? Because it's like, um, instead that becomes the, the, um, the pathway to the possibility of politics rather than something that has to be achieved through politics, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it is that it is somewhat putting the cart before the horse is that it's kind of like, I don't know, a lot of the um, the initial idea of, uh, you know, materialism or Marxism is like, you know, the politics needs to spring from whatever the material conditions are at, at the moment um, and not the other way around. And so if you if you consider it in that order, 
the material conditions that we have today are very, very specific and strange. And I would say um, uh, increasingly kind of outside the scope of traditional Marxian vocabulary. Um, and so we would need to start from there to then figure out what the politics are going to be and not try to graft the, the, an, an old politics onto the current moment kind of retroactively. Um, and so that's the struggle, of course. Um, uh, that's the that's the difficulty is because there just aren't going to be clear answers there, and it may not be something that kind of uh, emerges coherently for for many years, I guess. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. I mean, starting to dig into the question of reality TV itself, you know, you bring up in relation to what I was just trying to articulate the the sort of irony of the neo-Fordist fantasies espoused by Donald Trump in the book um, and point out that, you know, under his administration, the economy has not gotten any realer. Instead, we've crawled only further into the other world of phantom value and what is now referred to as cognitive capitalism. So part of the irony here is that, um, Trump, who's in some sense, the, as, as I think we can get into, and, you know, it's, it's already a cliche to say that he's sort of the, the ultimate postmodern political figure, but ironically, um, perhaps more effectively than anyone else, including someone like Bernie Sanders, he was effective at channeling this neo-Fordist nostalgia, right, this, this politics of um, returning to this mid-century American mode of production that's associated both with uh, prosperity and with uh, political possibilities that seem out of reach today. And, you know, we can think about this in relation to a few different um, specific things. You know, obviously he um, made a big deal about um, advocating returning manufacturing to the U.S., of course, what mostly happened with the tariffs on China and so on was that, you know, to the extent that it moved, it moved to other um, other countries like Vietnam, as I understand it. Um, so it was, it was really just a, a complete farce on that level. And then, you know, interestingly, the whole politics of protectionism, which had really been totally dead in American politics for decades, um, precisely because the sort of um, Rust Belt, you know, labor coalition that, that it was originally associated with, right, which emphasized protecting national industries had been completely dead. And so it was, instead it, it fell to this um, highly postmodern figure to revive this, this kind of um, largely forgotten policy platform that was previously associated with a an extremely straightforwardly self-interested sort of materialist sort of politics. Um, so, you know, I'm, I guess I'm curious, I, I think this does get us into the weird relationship between a kind of nostalgia for this uh, earlier period of, let's say, a kind of where, where a more straightforwardly materialist politics seemed possible um, and the rise of someone like Donald Trump, whose entire persona was shaped by this 
media saturated sort of postmodern culture that um, began to arise in its recognizable form in the eighties, right? Which is when I am, I'm sure you remember, you know, as a kid, eighties uh, and nineties, he was kind of just this figure of the spectacle, right? Who, who, you know, one of these sort of famous for being famous people. So I'm curious what your thought is on the relationship between his, again, ability to articulate a certain quite potent version of this, this sort of nostalgia for neo-Fordist politics and his complete immersion in this world of mediatic spectacle. Yeah, I, th I think I might be able to make an attempt at, at answering that. Um, so I guess if we start from kind of the, the premise that um, the neo-Fordism of the Trump uh, campaign and the Trump administration, that it was like a total, you know, fraud or something like that, or that it was a total nonsense because um, it's either uh, not realistic in this day and age, or they didn't effectively follow through with it um, or whatever. Um, uh, you are left with the fact that it was still an incredibly powerful way of doing politics, almost like kind of like the, the fakeness of it or the, um, uh, the pure nostalgia of it, or just the pure kind of um, effective um, force of it was an incredibly effective way of doing politics. And it didn't really um, matter so much that um, it was uh, ma materially uh, false or something like that. Um, so, I mean, it's another example of, um, of uh, a politics that may appear to be uh, materially oriented or um, heavily focused on concrete economic demands. Um, when really it's a profoundly cultural phenomenon. Um, I mean, and you can say similar things about the left. Um, uh, and uh, in order to kind of um, be on the left or insofar as I've ever been on the left, I've needed to view it as something very focused on concrete economic demands um, that are about really kind of the dollars and cents of what, what people have in their pockets and what they have access to. Um, but as kind of the Trump years wore on, and certainly um, uh, in my experience of writing the book and watching the primary play out, um, it seemed like it was another um, another kind of opposite thing where insofar as um, uh, the Democratic Party or um, kind of the, the left side of things are claiming to be pursuing uh, uh, economic demands, um, what they're really doing is just creating kind of a uh, attractive and fun cultural package that uh, is really what drives voters and what really kind of mobilizes and unifies populations. Um, I mean, this this may go too far, and I think a lot of people are going to uh, disagree with this um, straightforward statement about it. Um, I just don't see any evidence to believe that um, straightforward material interests are what form political kind of uh, movements. It, it doesn't seem like I have historical evidence of that. I mean, it's more um, much, uh, much trickier, much more complex um, and mediated um, things that you would call kind of uh, uh, cultural or aesthetic or, or something like that, that, that do seem to be more in the driver's seat, um, even though it's, that's a conclusion that I myself avoided drawing for, uh, for several years. I don't know if that, that makes sense at all. 
this this may seem like a tangent, but it makes me I I mean I brought up this uh, protectionist uh, platform that Trump kind of revived, uh, and and I said that it was maybe an example of a kind of straightforwardly materially self interested mode of politics. But at the same time, I, you know, I'm given what you just said, I'm, I'm sort of questioning that a little bit because I think it's also, it's difficult to comprehend outside of certain cultural settings and in the absence of certain cultural values, um, which I sort of, I, I mean, I remember thinking I really understood, you know, so you know, being in New York and so on. Like, I remember the the protectionism, the, the potency of the protectionism message, um, you know, in the States that Trump like surprisingly won in 2016. Yeah, I felt like a lot of the people around me like just didn't grasp like how that could have been a decisive thing. And, you know, I, there are a few things that we could say about this one. I, I don't think we have to believe that. And, and I think your argument there kind of helps with this. I don't think we have to believe that the people were so naive as to think that he was going to, by imposing these tariffs, like make everything like it had been, you know, 40 years, 50 years ago. Um, that, you know, I don't think we have to believe that people were so naive as to actually think that, that that was possible. Instead, what they valued was a sort of cultural signaling that, um, you know, this particular group of people and their livelihoods like had some value and importance right to the country. And so, you know, so maybe that's how I would sort of nuance my own previous claim. And then, I mean, I think I felt like I understood it because like part of my family kind of comes out of that like Rust Belt manufacturing world. And I mean, I remember them being protectionists like when I was a kid and, you know, criticizing my parents for like buying a foreign car and stuff. And, um, you know, so it was immersed, it, it came out of an immersion in this kind of set of cultural values. Now, the other thing that just sprung to mind was something I've observed over the past decade or two is um, the way you have this weird kind of, um, this weird kind of backdoor protectionism that's crept into kind of affluent urban cosmopolitan life, which is basically tied to this kind of I guess sort of that it, it's probably the fruit of the centrality of like anti-sweatshop activism at some point around the year 2000 that you, I mean, so think of um, American Apparel, right? Which is now no, no longer in existence, but it has various successor companies. So weirdly you actually, with American Apparel and other brands, you actually had a sort of cultural politics that among people who would have been against protectionism if framed in a certain way actually came to take pride in like buying American products right because they somehow saw that as less exploitative than you know buying um t-shirts manufactured in Bangladesh or whatever um so that so there's a weird way that that politics which I think to many people in sort of you know whatever educated urban professional milieus would like see protectionist attitudes around like what car you buy is like very retrograde and reactionary, but then they would actually accept them if, if it's like the, the sort of American apparel, like made in the USA clothing type company. So that, that seems like a good example of how it's not simply a material question, but it's, 
it's a sort of cultural one all the way down, right? Yeah. Because, um, it, you know, the, the basic, um, the basic issue uh, of whether something is manufactured here or somewhere else, you know, how that plays culture, how that plays politically to whom, like, depends a lot on their cultural values and the sort of cultural milieu in which they're operating. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's another really great example. It's kind of like, it's not the kind of material issue itself. It's really how it looks on you as like a political subject, kind of like, um, if I'm an affluent liberal, I may be um, really all about like, you know, eating local or something like that, or like organic things. And like the, the cultural um, reason for that is probably going to be something like environmental. Um, uh, whereas you can even just take much more of like a, like a, a blue collar or kind of conservative um, attitude of the same exact like value and say, uh, I like to support, you know, like farmers, I like American, like, you know, farming or, or whatever. Um, and so it is, um, yeah, it's, you know, it, it can be the, the same exact agenda item. Um, and it could just be characterized totally different. And then you have two different parties running, running against each other. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's another great example. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like, I'm imagining some, I'm imagining like the Drake meme where it's like, uh, <laughs> you know, like refusing to buy foreign cars, like, <laughs> you know, refusing to buy foreign made clothes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we should probably get into, so I think we're just trying to kind of um, establish a context for this weird cultural moment that we operate, that we're operating in and the, the, the su often surprising uh, political um, uh, developments that have taken place within it. Um, so this is probably a good place just to ask uh, what, you know, your book essentially makes the argument that the reality TV is sort of the, or at least offers a kind of privileged lens for understanding this larger cultural and political panorama. So what's your case for why reality TV is the, the sort of um, the best or at least one of the best vehicles for trying to make sense of this strange yeah. situation? Yeah, so I, um, I originally wanted to write the book and began writing the book mainly as just a fan of the genre. I just love reality television and I loved uh, thinking about it and writing about it. But um, of course, I found myself uh, writing about this topic um, kind of early on in the in the Trump administration. Um, and so I, you know, I said to myself, well, like, obviously, I'm going to need to bring that in. I'm going to need to bring in um, and set it in the moment that we happen to be living in. Um, it was more of a coincidence than anything, I guess. Like I probably would have written the book if Donald Trump never became uh, president and we were never talking about post-truth politics on MSNBC, um, but we were. So, um, so I needed to kind of frame it in that moment. And so the basic kind of definition or theory of reality television that I was, um, uh, putting forth in the book is that it is the, uh, the only, or at least the principal form of uh, narrative, popular narrative art that um, uh, 
says something about the way it's a depiction of social reality that also says something about the way we form social reality in the first place. Um, and so there's a lot of this stuff throughout, um, you know, the work of, uh, of uh, Lacan and Zizek and stuff like, like that about just the underlying, the fic- the fictitious basis of social reality. And I had been kind of familiar with that stuff through um, things like film theory and things like that, that I've just re- had read over the years. And it just seemed kind of like um, so obvious to me that whenever someone said, you know, any anyone who watches rea- reality TV gets this question like once a week, like, oh, how, how could you watch that stuff? It's so fake. They just, you know, put it together. Um, and so I had been kind of uh, sick of hearing that question. Uh, and also just disappointed with the banality of that question, because it's like, well, um, social practices are all kind of like simulated and performed and um, we all sorts of things are, um, are just, um, you know, made up and it's really a fiction, but we need to perform it in order to kind of maintain a social bond with each other. Um, and so I thought that the, this kind of criticism of about the stagedness of reality TV was just reflective of what of the the real reality that that we lived in or the uh in real life reality that um we were uh that that we're living in that we're working in um and that we're uh trying to kind of conduct politics in or trying to figure out the contours of where the real um the real conflicts in in society are um today uh and and all of that so i kind of the the inspiration for the title of the book, Reality Squared, came from um, one of Frederick Jameson's uh, definitions of what he thought dialectical thinking was. And he was like, um, dialectical thinking is thought to the second power. It's when you're you're thinking about some sort of subject matter, but you need to actually think about the thought process being applied to that subject matter. Um, and so I thought that was neat. And I thought that that was um, very similar to what's going on with re- reality television, where um, it's a fo- it's a uh, a form of depicting uh, reality, just like you know uh, you know traditional uh, forms of art or uh, or novels and stuff like that. But it actually says something about the constructedness of social reality itself. So that was kind of the the underlying idea of it. Yeah, I'm reminded of this um, Lacanian dictum that uh, the non dupes air, which you know, is generally understood to mean something like, you know, if you, if you, the non-dupes here would be the people who say to you, uh, well, how can you take that seriously? Do you, don't you know it's fake? Um, so they, they think that they're, they're not duped, right? But in fact, they're in a sense more duped because they can't access the symbolic fiction by which reality itself is structured, right? Or they're, or they're oblivious to it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That, um, uh, that, that, uh, Lacanian maxim was definitely something I had in mind. Um, and I think it, it also applies to some of the economic stuff that, that we were talking about that the kind of the, the orthodox Marxism about like the, the concrete, base of production being the only real thing and the rest of it all being um, kind of like uh, fictitious ballast or, or whatever um, is kind of another example of um, the non-duped airing a, a little bit thinking that you know the the biggest fantasy would be to suppose that um, 
any of it is not fantasy or, or something like that, that fantasy is ever not involved uh, with these things. So, um, so that ties into some of the stuff I also um, wrote about, um, about imposter syndrome and about um, kind of our, our conduct in the gaze of the big other, you know, another, um, another uh, big Lacanian uh, concept where um, as far as social reality is concerned, you are precisely what you pretend to be in the, in the gaze of the big other. And the hidden internal essence that seems so authentic to you is actually the biggest, uh, the biggest fraud of all, uh, because, because you exist in, in a, in a social uh, reality that isn't necessarily determined by you and, and what you have on the inside. It's kind of, it's out of your control. Yeah, I, I found myself um, reading your book, thinking about the way that, at least as you characterize it, you know, reality TV is, you know, is in a sense a highly avant-garde form in the, almost in the, in the manner of sort of, 20, you know, the, the great like 20th century avant-gardes, right? And in, in the sense of being a sort of art form that that constantly critiques itself um, and that that sort of um, includes the the sort of tools that you can um, use to deconstruct it right that that you know that's sort of one of the um, what I would say the features of the sort of great you know literary and artistic avant-gardes of the 20th century so what's interesting to me here is that it's almost as if um, this sort of form of mass culture, right, in the, in the sort of, um, you know, the, again, the sort of 20th century sense that, that's still, I'd say, often derogatory, right? It's, it's culture that's consumed by, and, the, you know, this, I would say, is another source of the kind of contempt for it that maybe, like, educated people would typically have, even if, as you discuss in the book, they're, they're sort of also enjoying it as a guilty pleasure. Um, but what's interesting to me is the way that almost the, you know, in the 20th century, you see how the sort of avant-garde um, strategies and techniques gradually go from sort of high culture to sort of middle brow culture, right? Now it's almost like if you compare um, what I would take to be like the great sort of middle, black, middle brow culture of recent times, um, which you discuss in contrast to reality TV is prestige TV, right? The sort of, um, you know, basically the, the sort of line of prestige TV that begins with things like The Sopranos, The Wire, then Breaking Bad and, and um, so on. Um, so what's it, so that seems like that's the quintessential sort of middle brow culture, which which has certain um, you know it's it it has certain airs of high culture, right? But but is also more widely accessible and more widely consumed. But but it's the kind of thing that can be consumed unguiltily, right? Because it's not it's not tainted by this kind of mass culture um, stigma. So but what's interesting to me here is that in a sense narratively most, most of these um, sort of achievements of prestige TV are considerably more naive narratively than reality TV as you describe it. So it's almost as if we could see a reversal where 
reality TV is is a strange kind of continuation of the the sort of avant-garde self-deconstructing legacy of art, whereas um, prestige TV represents this kind of recongealment of middle-brow culture around this relatively naive mode of narrative of narrative, right? Um, which is which is you know constructed on a kind of illusionism, right? Which you could easily take apart using the sort of you know Roland Barthes um, type uh, debunking strategies, right? That that he that he uses on kind of realist narrative. Um, so whereas you know I don't think reality TV can be subject to that kind of Barthesian analysis because it already in a sense incorporates it, right? <laughs> so I don't know I don't know what your thoughts are about that, but that was just something that struck me kind of reading this that in a way we have this, this mass cultural form that seems more avant-garde and more radical and sort of self-deconstructing than any of what is being um, enjoyed by you know, the, the more um, pretentious educated types. Yeah, I, th those points I think are perfectly said. That's a lot of exactly what I was trying to communicate um, in, in writing this book. Um, uh, to start, I love the comparison that you made um, between uh, reality television and kind of the 20th century avant-garde, um, where it's, you know, the, this thing where it's a mode of storytelling or representation that is always about itself, um, formally always implicated in its own kind of like formal conceits. Um, and uh, this is something I think that a lot, if, um, uh, if uh, someone doesn't watch a lot of reality television, um, they might not be aware of, but like, that's a big part of the experience is kind of um, watching it and like thinking about the way it's been done. And oftentimes, you know, I turn to my roommate I and I say like, you know, are you buying this, what, this part, this storyline, you know, that th this doesn't feel exactly right. They haven't quite pulled it off here. Um, and another thing I've, I've noticed is in recent years, maybe in the past uh, two or three years or so, um, They've gotten also more comfortable in kind of showing uh, showing the seams in kind of the, the the way they create the product. There's more instances um, in which you kind of see uh, the producers on camera kind of stepping in and having a conversation. Um, you know, it's like breaking the fourth or fifth wall or something like that, whatever you want to call it. But just um, or during reunions, like during Real Housewives reunions, um, they often refer to the fact that like... Um, that they know they were filming that day and that something that occurred was like because of that. So all of that gets kind of tied back in into the narrative of what um, you're watching the characters uh, go through. So that's a big part of um, a big part of the enjoyment that I get out of the genre and the, the reference that I, that I have to make, that's just one of my, my favorite kind of parallels ever um, that I mentioned uh, about the Hills, about the notorious ending of the Hills um, it's almost exactly the same ending um, uh, as uh, uh, Jodorowsky's The Holy Mountain, um, where at the end of uh, Holy Mountain, he says, like, you know, pull back camera and the camera pulls back and shows like the set. And he says something like real life awaits us. Um, the same exact thing happens at the end of The Hills is Brody Jenner is staring off into the distance um, and then they wheel and like the Hollywood sign is, is behind him, but they wheel it away and it's a fake set and they pull back. And it's a set and things like this. So it was this like very daring postmodern um, gesture that um, applies, I think, specifically to the hills, because as I kind of try to um, address in that chapter, 
it is like the show that took the kind of the artifice of reality television to its kind of its its maximum. Um, and just the um, what, and what's interesting about that show is just how well they pull it off about how entertaining a narrative show um, they put together um, uh, through these techniques where often it's in, almost indistinguishable from fiction television, which isn't the case for a lot of uh, a lot of reality TV. I think a lot of it is um, f- feels very different. Um, another thing um, you said was kind of about um, the. Uh, how, how kind of naive uh, some of the middle brow um, uh, prestige television is. And um, I totally agree with that. I am a, a fan of a lot of these shows. I don't watch a yeah, ton of too. fiction. I don't, I don't watch a ton of fiction television, uh, but I do watch, you know, the big ones. And, you know, I, I like them as, as much as the next guy. Um, but there is something, there's always something a little bit um, too, too neat, even with shows like uh, Breaking Bad or The Sopranos that try to set up these kind of complex moral characters that have all of this, this ethical ambiguity. And that's kind of what defines them. Um, still, it's a little bit too, um, it just feels a little bit too fictional. Um, uh, the, the, com- the comparison that, or that I um, made a couple of years ago in, a, in an article I wrote for Pace had to do with the, the depiction of um, uh, addiction, alcoholism, um, and substance abuse in reality television versus in um, f- in traditional fiction, either novels or um, there were a couple, I think, TV shows I was writing about, like Mad Men, um, where something like alcoholism is always this kind of sexy character trait, and it feeds into an arc where you know the character kind of like comes up and down through it, um, and it's just a you know it's kind of a, a cliche even. Um, even if it's done very well in, in something like like Mad Men, um, it still does feel like a cliche and it doesn't ring uh, true in the same way that I think it does in reality TV. Um, in reality TV, uh, alcoholism is actually a huge theme in all sorts of the shows. Um, it's very, very realistic because you have these people who are partying and drinking all of the time and it absolutely does have a profound effect on their relationships and their health on uh their mental health all of that and it it feels more resonant to me because it's like um because the show is not contained in the same way that a piece of fiction is it's a problem that never goes away and it's a problem that was there kind of before the camera started rolling and it just kind of like always recurs in these um sad and, and frustrating ways um, for, for characters. So I, I kind of, I, I just written um, something about that, that there's like a, um, there's a certain bottomlessness to the, the characters on reality television, precisely because they're real human beings and they're not, uh, it's not a character that has like kind of a beginning and an end and a clear narrative arc. Um, it's much, much more ambiguous and you can kind of, uh, you can, you know, never, never kind of stop thinking about it, kind of never, never reach a final conclusion. Um, that's also something I wrote, wrote about with respect to, to Vanderpump rules, just the question of kind of like ethics and, and, uh, and behavior, um, like the extent to which we can ever render a final judgment on these characters and the way they've, they've, uh, they've behaved. Um, we really can't, I think because it is so um, 
it's so complex to actually judge another human being, whereas you can and you precisely are supposed to judge a um, a character in fiction. Um, you know, like Walter White, it's about his, it's specifically about his ethical deterioration. Um, and and that's uh, that's part of the story. Um, so yeah, th- I mean, that's what, that's what keeps me interested in it. Um, and last thing I guess I wanted to point out about this, um, and this is, I think, something that um, makes, is what makes reality TV so compelling. And I don't really like to use the word addicting because that's kind of, that has negative connotations, but um, reality TV, in my experience, generally I find um, it, it's very easy to watch. It's very, very interesting. And I'm kind of always excited to put it back on and I just get a lot out of it without having to put like a ton of effort into it. Whereas when I'm starting a fiction show these days, I am really cautious about (laughs) whether I'm gonna start a show because um, inevitably these fiction shows, even if they're quite good, it does feel like work. And the amount of of enjoyment, the amount of uh, intellectual, kind of stimulation or the, um, the emotional impact that it has on me is usually like, uh, as much or substantially less than I get out of watching Real Housewives, um, or something like that. So it has this reality television, I think just has, um, a more, has a more, more profound content to, to mine when you really look into it and it's more accessible to us, um, I think because there's just this like cognitive immediacy to it where you just immediately recognize the real person there and you just kind of like get it, you get what they're going through um, without having to go through um, these kind of laborious um, kind of uh, devices that traditional fiction relies on. Um, So it was a bit of a hodgepodge uh, response, but um, I think that kind of responds to what what you you were getting at. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's really fascinating. I think, you know, I think here of Brecht as sort of, uh, you know, one of the avant-garde figures I had in mind. Um, but what, you know, what, what strikes me is also the way that, um, something I've been interested in for a while is, um, you know, I think sometimes that kind of avant-garde deconstructive quality can lead to, um, to works that are, sort of conceptually interesting and offer some kind of statement, but once that's been achieved, it's not clear where you go from there. So I, you know, my sense is a lot of the, um, a lot of the more interesting sort of 20th century avant-garde projects of this sort, you know, it's like they, they didn't really um, lead anywhere in particular, right. They, they sort of, uh, they made the statement, but, um, beyond that, um, they, I mean, particularly interesting in relation to what you were just saying about the way that this form can kind of command our continued attention, right? I think, you know, with with these kinds of works where the, the primary goal is to make some kind of artistic statement where you're um, debunking or in some way um, or demystifying some previous form, um, that there's a kind of limitation of where you can go beyond that, right? So what's interesting to me is, you know, the way you're describing it, it's as if in some way we're, we're seeing these avant-garde projects being continued in a, in a form that is, you know, popular and accessible and that also has a kind of 
um, staying power and ability to to um, kind of perpetuate itself. Yeah. Um, so that you know that just seems like a really intriguing phenomenon that uh, people don't seem nearly attentive enough to. And I think that's partly because the kind of most of the kind of people who, you know, make their living commenting on culture, just don't pay that much attention to it, right? Because they're yeah. they're too busy um, hyping the latest uh, prestige series from, you know, HBO or Showtime or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I mean, I I kind of I like that. It's it's interesting because I guess it sounded like you were getting at that a lot of kind of the the, the projects. Uh, of the avant-garde in the early, earlier 20th century um, that uh, it seemed like they had like a, a real intention behind it or a real goal behind it, but it didn't seem to land anywhere that was um, uh, as socially significant as it kind of might've hoped to be, I guess. And, and, I, and I must say, I was never, um, never like uh, hugely in, into that stuff um, because I would often find it alienating, but um, with, with reality television, it is, uh, it has these similar properties. I think it also starts off in a much more humble place where I think very specifically every, every producer out there, um, they literally really don't care what happens. They just want to make a really entertaining show. They just want it to kind of like land with people who enjoy this sort of thing. And in that process of openness of saying, you know, we don't necessarily know what's, what's going to happen or, um, how someone is going to react when they're, they're put in this situation, that openness, um, I think creates just something authentic. That is a lot more, um, I don't know. There's, there's a lot more to get out of it there. There's a, a, a more genuine, I guess, production, uh, uh, aesthetic production, um, of some sort. So, uh, so yeah, it's interesting. And it's, um, uh, it's definitely why I, why I continue watching. Another thing that struck me that that I think is relevant here is um, this uh, chapter about The Bachelor and particularly what I thought of in relation to it was the way that weirdly this, you know, space of social media in which we're all, you know, living as these sort of flat fictional personae um, in this space where we're completely uprooted from any kind of meaningful, you know, community or history or tradition um, and have just been reduced to, you know, these kinds of um, digital avatars competing for empty rewards, uh, you know, that, that in this world that I'm trying to describe, um, which all the, most of us inhabit at least some of the time, there's been this uh, odd resurgence of um, the, tra you know, what would seem to be the opposite of that, which would be something like trad aesthetics, um, the sort of idealization of traditional communities, traditional forms of human relationship. And so we've seen this kind of, um, this way that this, um, this very new mode of, of social interaction and, and relationship, which is, you know, the opposite of what we would conceive of as traditional has um, seemed to bring about a kind of second order fetishization of, of, its, of its apparent opposite. So that's something I've been and, and have addressed on a couple of episodes of this podcast so far um, in other contexts. But 
um, your your account of the way that the bachelor kind of is this weird space in which this sort of hyper heteronormative um, set of values um, can uh, persist, but in in this strange um, kind of second order form, um, struck me as somewhat related to that observation. I don't know if you would agree, but yeah. Um, you know, it's it, it seems like another example of how this this, uh, you know, reversion built into some kind of mode of apparent um, uh, pushing forward into the future um, seems to occur. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, uh, I I've noticed that as well. And I, I think some of the um, uh, some of the most careful thinkers about this kind of trad stuff and uh, its role uh, on the on the internet and in some of the kind of um, uh, artistic or political um, movements that we have right now is that it is itself also kind of like a um, like a, a cosplay or, or something like that um, that it like the the idea of going back to a more authentic um, traditional lifestyle is um, itself just another fantasy to choose from in our, our kind of uh, our, our toolbox of social realities that, that we could choose from today. Um, and so that was something that I was trying to work out in that chapter. Um, a lot of the chapters that are based on um, particular shows were all about me attempting to kind of identify what kind of the central con- contradiction of the show was and just trying to kind of work it out and see what's happening. And so it's it's exactly that in The Bachelor. Um, I mean, um, when whenever I would uh, uh, bring that show up or in kind of the, the circles that I would be um, discussing them in, they were, you know, almost always, you know, uh, at, at least upper middle class, but sometimes even just you know, upper class uh, professional people um, who have all of the correct, you know, liberal uh, values um, and all of that but could not look away from The Bachelor, which is the most uh, obscenely traditional heteronormative thing ever. Um, And look, I put myself in that category too. Um, uh, I love watching The Bachelor and I do find myself kind of like uh, uh, fascinated by its uh, its tradness, but it exists in this strange um, simulated space. And so kind of the, the, um, at least where I land on it by the end of that chapter is that I kind of, you know, say that it, you know, this, the enjoyment of this show results from the fact that like, we want to go back, but we know we can't go back. That's, you know, that's another thing that I think a lot of um, uh, the more um, uh, kind of conservative thinkers on the left, uh, the, um, the kind of uh, Lashian critique of neoliberalism and its effect on the family and um, stuff, stuff like that. Like there is always the understanding that like, we can't, actually go back to a more rigidly conservative period, but we kind of want to, or we kind of want to get the same sort of feelings that we would imagine having the same sort of positive kind of results that we would imagine having from some of those more traditional structures. Um, And so what we want is to experience it in a totally contained, safe, simulated space where we don't actually need to take any um, major risks in our, our personal lives. Um, we just get to, um, we get to experience it and it's not, it's not in a kind of a trashy, um, you know, grocery store romance uh, novel. It's in this big kind of like monoculture thing where like 
um, still uh, so many people watch that show. I think it's it's still the most reliable um, reference point I have. I think if I'm meeting kind of new people, if, if they watch reality TV, they probably watch The Bachelor. Um, uh, and so uh, and so it's interesting. And I, I think that um, another thing that I tried to do when writing about these shows is like, I want to say that, that this is like, it's not necessarily a bad thing. And, and I don't want to, um, I think too, too many times when we write about um, stuff like reality TV or, or think about it is like, we like uncover its little kind of like trick in the way it relates to, you know, neoliberalism or, or, or whatever. Um, and that it makes it sound like a bad thing that we enjoy it for that reason. But I think that, um, I think that's a good thing, or at least it explains what is so compelling about it. Um, and it, it, it shows that our enjoyment of it kind of springs from something that is authentic and a real, a real need that we do need from, from popular culture or art or, or storytelling or, or, or whatever. Yeah. It seemed like there was a similar dynamic in your analysis of the real housewives that it sort of um, became this, as, as you account for it, this space for kind of um, playing out some of the uh, paroxysms of sort of um, contemporary feminism and particularly this whole question of having it all and, you know, how it's, it's clearly not a sort of, um, you know, overtly feminist program, right, in, in a way that would um, attempt to please those who, let's say, sort of keep that, the acceptable um, positions or expressions within that sort of ideological framework. But um, it seems like you're presenting it as, uh, you know, a, a useful space for simply um, exploring what the the complexities of that um, that sort of ideological framework in relationship with contemporary economic reality are. Yeah. Is that yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, this one, uh, this was kind of a trickier chapter to write about, I think. And it's also kind of my favorite, Real Housewives is kind of my favorite area mm. of, of reality television. So it was one that I kind of tried to put a lot of thought into. But but yeah, I started with the idea that um, kind of like the the figure of like the real housewife. It's such a ridiculous term too um, that um, uh, I love because it's become like almost a term of art within uh, within reality television. Because uh, almost none of them are housewives. Um, they're all business people. Um, you know, they're you know Bethany Frankel's like a billionaire. They work in real estate and insurance and stuff like that. Um, uh, but uh, there's this like um, there's this key significance to that term real or like that term housewife that that's in there because the show is gendered. It's about women primarily. Um, it's about um, their experiences um, and their kind of struggles and contradictions. And so um, having that gendered term um, right right in the title, I thought was just uh, uh, very um, suggestive. And so. My, my idea was that this figure of the real housewife um, is kind of a simulacral figure. Um, and what it, what it is, is it represents the ideal of having it all is, um, 
there there are two tracks that the show uh, the shows run on. Um, their 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 kind of their business um, uh, objectives and things that they're pursuing uh, goal wise, uh, and then uh, their family and interpersonal struggles. And um, it's uh, it's often about those things are um, interrelated, but they are depicted as naturally harmonious, that there's not a big contradiction um, between these things. They can be, uh, the intensity of those experiences can be very, very high, but um, there's no reason why they, those two uh, tracks can't coexist, um, at least in the basic kind of structure of the show. Um, but what's really interesting about the show is um, how, uh, uh, kind of how dark it gets um, and how uh, happy it is to show all of that stuff, because again, com- coming back to um, kind of the what a typical producer's attitude is, is um, I mean, they're uh, certainly they have their own material interests in all of that, but like they're not ideologues who are attempting to, um, you know, they're not bourgeois ideologues. Uh, they're just trying to make an entertaining show. So showing something that um, suggests kind of the crack in the armor of this neoliberal um, fantasy image of the real housewife. Um, they're very happy to film that. And I, I think in fact, they, they want to film all of that because that's most salacious, entertaining stuff. Um, and so uh, the role of um, hired uh, you know, domestic laborers um, is kind of one of the, one of the, the examples that, that I talk about because um, uh, these, uh, you know, the the affluent members of, of these shows do have those workers around all the time and they're part of the show. And that shows uh, then precisely what the support, what the, the kind of the material support of this uh, fantasy ideal of the real housewife or of having it all um, is. And that is um, uh, these um, d- domestic laborers and um, immigration and things like that. And what Nancy Fraser talks about global care chains is that like someone has to do the care work. Um, it just gets continually kind of um, uh, put down the, the economic ladder until eventually there's someone somewhere, an old person or uh, a child or, or, or whatever, just not being cared for because, um, because uh, it has all been kind of um, pushed, pushed up the, the global economic ladder. Um, so, you know, it's uh, it starts as a very um, a very attractive, very compelling image of the the total uh, neoliberal real housewife who does have it all. Um, but what becomes interesting about it is exactly the um, the the issues with that, the hidden lurking uh, darkness of the relationships that they're in, the emptiness of their um, uh, their frivolous you know, lifestyles and stuff like that. And the show I think is, is very good at exploring those things. Uh, yeah. I thought the, um, yeah, the point about the domestic help being, you know, it being like one of the only sort of cultural spaces in which the uh, central role of domestic help and particularly like immigrant um, labor in, in the sort of domestic sphere for sort of upper middle-class uh, people is is actually like extensively represented was extremely interesting <laughs> yeah right that that that's that's sort of one of these like dirty secrets that um it, it brought me back to like i remember even um 
back in the Clinton era, I remember like there was this thing where like Clinton nominated, you know, he was trying to um, get, you know, more women in cabinet roles and things like that, but he kept like nominating these women and then it would be found out that they had like illegal, you know, immigrant nannies or whatever. And so they'd Mm -hmm. have to step down. It seems like that, I don't know, I guess people have just decided that's not a scandal anymore or something because presumably it's just as much the case today as it was back then. Right. But now we've just decided to sort of sweep it under the rug. Yeah. Um, But, you know, it's, it's an interesting, again, example of how, you know, there, if, if you think about um, these, these more, uh, I mean, it's just, it's interesting to me how, you know, if, if we think about, um, you know, even when sort of prestige TV is like trying to be highly realistic in some sense, it, I think there's quite a bit that gets swept under the rug that would be sort of too embarrassing to uh, the class of people who are most likely to enjoy it. Yeah. Um, so I think there's, there's again, some case to be made for why you know, I, I mean, before I was imagining it as kind of a, you know, an avant-garde form, but I'm also thinking about, you know, Lu, sort of Lukács' case for the realist novel, you know, as as the only form that can kind of reveal the social totality, um, you know, and, and provide, and this goes to something you discussed towards the end of the book, right, this kind of Jamesonian, and I think of Jameson as a successor of Lukács, right, that the sort of Jamesonian notion of cognitive mapping um, that I think, you know, that that wasn't the term that Lukács was using, but, you know, when, when he was describing the realist novel as that which sort of even Marx and Engels sort of needed to, to pass through and someone like Balzac in order to, um, in order to be able to kind of map out the reality they were trying to comprehend. Um, you know, there, there's just, I, I think that, um, the example we were just discussing is is maybe kind of a good illustration of some of the potential of this form. Yeah, yeah, exactly. At, at some point, yeah, Jameson uses um, the the term. I think it's in his big essay about postmodernism. Is that he was like these are part are peculiar new forms of realism, um, and so that's what I think. Uh, I think that that's exactly a, a description of what reality TV is. Is that on the on the one hand, it's kind of like. Uh, the fakest, most kind of outrageous, ridiculous thing in the world. But that is precisely our peculiar, you know, new form of realism that we have that helps us do this, uh, this cognitive mapping of our otherwise totally, totally, you know, baffling, incomprehensible, overly complex, and fragmented uh, social reality that that we're, we're always trying to figure out. And would you say that uh, I mean, we, we sort of started out by discussing Trump a little bit um, and just coming back to him, how would you sort of map people's incomprehension of reality TV onto their incomprehension of what the Trump presidency really meant? In other words, do, do you think there's sort of a, um, oh yeah. Some way that those things mutually illuminate each other. That, in other words, the the way that the things that people misunderstood or couldn't grasp about Trump when he was a candidate and when he was president, um, and then the things that people, you know, and I'm thinking essentially of kind of the 
um, the media and it's sort of educated liberal consumers, um, what, what they're also unable to grasp about the nature of reality TV. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, it, it is, it is a very interesting comparison. Um, I, I write about some of this, I think in the, in the, the first few pages of the book that like everything that was supposed to be Donald Trump's like worst characteristics, those were his actual strengths. Like the way he could just say all sorts of bullshit and just, you know, <laughs> send an audience into an uproar, um, by just, you know, baffling, uh, baffling, uh, uh, interviewers with bullshit, um, being so kind of like random and, and ridiculous and, um, such a cartoonish figure. This is what kind of, you know, like, uh, bourgeois liberals, like just hated so much about him, but these were his greatest, uh, strengths. That was precisely what made him so compelling. So, um, for a while undefeated, a political figure because, um, he was, he's just such a natural, uh, tactician of of all of that stuff, um, and it's a, it's the same thing about kind of uh, reality television. Kind of any of the criticisms that you have for it, one of it, one of them is the um, kind of the the banality of the subject matter that it's just like you know it's just people living their lives and like sometimes nothing in particular is happening. Um, uh, uh, that is that is actually a big strength of the genre. That's what um, people who watch it want to see. They kind of want want to see um, some of the more uh, uh, humdrum day to day kind of uh, things. And similarly, it's it's formal properties, it's constructiveness, um, it's uh, it's aesthetics. Uh, all of those things are kind of raised as like criticisms of the genre when really um, it's what uh, makes it so, so compelling. So the, the, the comparison is, is apt and it shows how much, um, how the way liberals kind of missed the point, um, really for the whole duration of Donald Trump's presidency. Um, uh, it's, it's the same way that kind of like middle, middle brow snobs, uh, also missed the point when, uh, being so dismissive of, uh, or condescending to reality television. Right. It's the, it's the non-dupes airing again. Right. It's, um, it's that, you know, I, when I describe this criticism, it's like the, the sort of crying Wojak meme comes into my head, but it's like the sort of, how can you believe that Donald Trump is a straight shooter or, you know, tells it like it is or whatever, or think that he's authentic. Like he lies all the time. And, you know, that's, that's exactly the, the delusion, right. Um, that, that somehow, First of all, believing that there is some other who does not know that, right? Who, who take who who takes him literally, right? <laughs> um, and second of all, um, believing that there is actually a contradiction between those two things, right? Um, in other words, believing that those who describe him, him as a straight straight shooter when they say that mean that he is, you know, fully truthful in some kind of sense of being, uh, you know offering an accurate picture of objective reality or something like that. Right. right. That's, that's the, that's the delusion. Um, that's the sort of non dupes error. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and obviously Trump, we could probably go into this more, but he sort of learned how to thrive in this world um, in both 
reality television and in wrestling, which I would think of as kind of a, a an, another form of entertainment that is that is similarly explicit about the um, I mean, and that that is also a kind of strangely avant-garde form of entertainment, right? Um, and that is explicit about the non-opposition between real and fake or authentic and inauthentic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, the, the, the parallel with, with wrestling, I think, is, um, is, is exactly on point. Um, I refer to it at some point of like, it's like the masculinist, like kind of like older brother of, uh, of reality television. Um, and it does play precisely on this question of artifice and about kind of a deal in between the entertainers and the, um, the audience. And it is that um, kind of that understanding that makes it, um, they call it sports entertainment. It's not sports, it's not just entertainment, sports entertainment. Um, that creates just a whole new thing. I mean, there's nothing like uh, pro wrestling. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's not for everybody and it's not what it used to be in my opinion, but um, certainly in kind of the, the late nineties and stuff like that, um, remarkably uh, entertaining and fascinating and um, like, like nothing else on television for a while. Um, and, and yeah, it's just, it's no coincidence that Donald Trump um, had his time in, in pro wrestling and he was a, a natural fit. And then it was just um, a very short step uh, to the United States presidency, I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, by way of The Apprentice, right? Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, I had one other thing that I, that I thought was really nice at the, the beginning of the book, um, which is where you kind of present OJ and the, the sort of OJ trial as the, you know, it's, it's almost like it's the, the um, point of origin of this entire cultural complex, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I, that, I thought that was a nice um, thing to go back to because I, I do think that as a sort of televised event, you know, I still, I mean, I remember though I was pretty young, the, you know, the OJ car chase. And I mean, I still think of that followed by the trial as sort of this absolute watershed moment um, in kind of birthing the, the, rea the strange reality we're all part of now. Um, I wonder if you could just say a bit about that and, and how sort of OJ fits into all of this. Yeah, um, it's, uh, it's such a strange kind of confluence of all sorts of different um, kind of like themes. If you look back on the, the OJ trial, um, you know, I was also pretty young, but it is kind of one of my earliest memories of like, uh, like, I don't know, I was probably like um, uh, six or five or six or something at the time. Um, and I was like, whoa, something really, really big is going on. And the adults are absolutely obsessed with this. <laughs> um, and then, so like, in retrospect, you have, um, uh, you have kind of like these two kind of big connections. One is like a lot of people credit it with um, uh, the birth of like the 24 hour news cycle and of like just the like blockbuster entertainment style of uh, cable news now, um, which has its own kind of similarities to, to uh, reality television itself and its own kind of ambiguities with respect to the idea of um, shared reality. 
Uh, and then uh, you also have all, all of these connections to the Kardashians, um, uh, the, the, the family connections and stuff like that, that OJ is literally Kim Kardashian's godfather. Um, it's almost too, it's almost too on the nose, honestly. Um, and I think it was, um, uh, it was like a, I think a Vanity Fair piece that, that I um, cite uh, in that chapter that um, someone pointed out that the coverage of the OJ trial literally re replaced soap opera um, programming uh, during the day. So it was like uh, made for precisely the same audiences that wanted to see soap operas. Um, and it really, uh, it led the way into what's, you know, what's referred to as the docu-soap uh, form of reality television today, um, which is kind of the, the, the sine qua non of the, of the genre, um, uh, uh, for me at least. Uh, so yeah, it's, um, it's a, it's a fascinating connection. Um, it's almost creepy to me, um, in how kind of, how, how many, how, how much of the groundwork for today's present reality, today's entertainment and political landscape that the, the OJ moment, uh, ended up laying, laying down. What I remember was like when the, when the murder first happened, my main association with OJ was the naked gun movies. Right. Where he mm -hmm. appears as this kind of goofy sidekick character. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And he's actually kind of this hapless character. Who's always, I don't know. He, he's always like having terrible things befall him. Um, and, you know, but he comes across as this kind of nice, charming, like goofy guy. So I think just the cognitive dissonance of like, you know, being whatever age I was and like being into those extremely silly these um and then having this guy you know accused of this horrifying brutal murder was just like this incredible moment for um this you know collision of fiction and reality that um you know and that's again part of how i think of him as this odd figure who was like um ha had this strange pervasive presence in the culture prior to you know, even when he committed the the murders, the murders, and then, um, you know, goes on to, and then, you know, his, his continued bizarre presence after that, um, yeah. you know, is, so, you know, it's, it, it's appropriate that he is in a sense, kind of the godfather of this entire sort of cultural complex. Yeah. Uh, I, I actually had kind of a, like an inverse experience with um, uh -huh. some of the OJ stuff, because uh, when I first started watching Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, um, I wasn't, I actually didn't know a whole lot about the, the OJ trial. Like I never really like um, uh, understood all of the facts or all of the characters. Cause I was just a bit too young to remember everyone involved. So um, I originally knew Faye Resnick as a, a character on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. And I had all sorts of opinions about Faye and like, <laughs> you know, like knew her very well as a character. And then once I, um, once, you know, that that big documentary came out and that FX series came out and stuff like that, I started um, uh, just uh, learning more more about the, uh, all, the, the whole story and educating myself. Um, and I was like, I was like, oh, that's who Faye Resnick is. She uh, was a huge, huge part of that that whole that whole OJ moment as uh, Nicole Brown's um, best friend. And she wrote this salacious book, and then I was like in Playboy and stuff like that. Um, so I had it coming kind of like from the from the opposite 
uh, angle. Yeah, no, and it, it really does, you know, it, it's, I mean, this whole network is itself this kind of, almost kind of emergent avant-garde artwork. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's just sort of the shape this, this, you know, artificial reality has, has taken. Um, so, you know, which, which is so imbued with the kind of symbolic fiction that, <laughs> that sort of structures reality itself. Um, I guess to wrap up, just, uh, I wanted to go to your piece from the bellows, which, you know, I think you partly, um, present as a, a sort of framing piece for the, the project of the book. Um, but also as, you know, and as I said to you before we started really, I would say one of the best sort of postmortems of the, uh, the left post, you know, Bernie um, and post 2020 election. Um, but interestingly, you you start out with uh, the GameStop phenomenon, and I think it might be interesting to just say briefly how it ties into the themes that we've been addressing so far in your in your understanding of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, I, I had these kind of ideas kind of uh, uh, bubbling in my head for a while, and I touched on some of them, particularly in the Real Housewives chapter um, toward the end of it. But um, just I've been thinking about kind of uh, finance today, its relationship to Marxian thought, and um, the question of, you know, a lot of the book is focused on social reality. Um, but of what the contours of economic reality are today. Um, and so uh, when, when GameStop happened, um, I just thought it was just so fascinating to observe because you had these like two very contradictory um, narratives, at least that I was seeing play out. Um, uh, one of them was saying that, uh, that, you know, kind of, I think the, the most kind of the typical um, left uh, observation of it was that this, you know, unmasks the total irrationality of the market and how completely uh, uh, fictitious stock prices are. And, um, you know, just people can get together and, you know, like uh, increase uh, prices way, way, you know, inflate them way beyond um, their so-called real value. Um, And so this proves that finance is evil and bullshit and, um, uh, and terrible. Uh, and then you had this other kind of like um, like internet kind of like populist uh, feeling as well that this is the um, kind of like these are the heirs to occupy Wall Street. Um, they are uh, kind of um, taking hold of the concept of finance and uh, the it and they figured out a way to uh, to profit from the irrationality of the market um, and that this is almost a kind of um, an essential form of political expression, um, having the right to completely uh, screw around with GameStop stock and AMC stock and make money doing it and be able to uh, put put money in your pocket as an individual doing it, um, that this is a core political right of this um, economic moment. And so I was like, wow, these are, you know, quite, quite contradictory. Uh, both have their merits, certainly. Um, 
But I kind of wanted to start the essay by saying, how do we resolve that contradiction? And kind of what does it say about the economic moment that we're in and about what the political potential of, uh, of this economic moment is? And, you know, start, start from there, you know, um, don't start from the way the, you know, the 18 hour workday in the mid 19th century industrial um, Europe, uh, start with this very odd situation that we're looking at and kind of what does it say about narrative? What does it say about uh, economic reality? So that, that was kind of the starting point for me. Yeah. And then you sort of, um, towards the end, you know, make a rather broad and I think important critique of any sort of attempt to you know, in the face of phenomena like the ones we've been discussing, including the one, the one that you just discussed, um, to, you know, the idea that we can return to some kind of straightforward Marxian materialism. Um, and so you, I'm just going to quote from the last few paragraphs of the essay. As things stand, it seems we are veering unavoidably into a certain post-truth meta-capitalism, a system so dominated by cognitive labor and the digital fractals of finance that some of the most powerful companies on the planet, including and especially those that are radically reshaping the way we live and think via tech platforms and algorithmic logistics, needn't bother turning a profit anymore. Today, real economic power runs deeper, past mere money commodities and into the fabric of social reality itself. If that is the case, we should acknowledge that Marxists not only lack a clear economic vocabulary for such a shift, but also have no political meta-narrative by which to interpret and respond to it. In fact, the re-emergent popularity of Marxian discourse, and in particular its, per its popular adoption of mainstream center-left politics, should itself be seen as an example of the postmodern repetition of forms, or what Mark Fisher might describe as an endlessly repeating hauntological construct that does more more to remind us of what we have lost in the past than what we may rediscover in the future. So I thought that was very eloquent and, you know, captured some misgivings and reflections I've had in the past several years, um, you know, despite having essentially supported uh, Bernie both times. Um, I think this really gets at the limitations of that movement and sort of everything that's come out of it. Um, and particularly, you know, part of what the article does is not only get at the limitations of that movement, but also get at the limitations of the standard sort of materialist critique of the way that that movement went, right? Which is essentially to say that it didn't stay material. It didn't stay true to its materialist roots. It didn't stay materialist enough. And therefore it lost because it failed to appeal to this, um, you know, true working class constituency, which is always kind of just, just out of reach. Um, because, you know, true materialist politics hasn't yet been tried or something. So, yeah, I thought that was um, a really valuable criticism, again, criticism of the criticism of the sort of standard form that left politics has taken. Um, so, you know, part of your argument is that um, 
there are reasons to be skeptical of the particular modes of cultural politics that uh, the left has in various ways fallen into. Um, the idea of sort of um, circumventing cultural politics altogether is, is a sort of fool's errand. Um, it is another example of sort of non-dupes erring probably. Right. So I don't know, could you make a sort of uh, brief version of that argument as you see it? Yeah. Yeah. I could, I could give it a try. Um, and, and I would start by saying um, I, uh, part of the reason I kind of wrote this essay and what I was trying to work out was also just a criticism of myself and the assumptions that I had. Um, I will like, uh, I'll totally cop to it, especially I would say in the first two years of the Trump presidency, um, I was, uh, I was, you know, gone with the wind on Bernie and on, um, like, uh, straightforward, uh, socialism. And I was like, absolutely convinced of that, that system of, of doing politics. And it just came as, um, a, a pretty profound disappointment to see the way that worked out. Um, and, um, earlier this year, um, I was, uh, revisiting, um, uh, the, the book that I mentioned in the piece, uh, Capitalism and Social Democracy. And I was just reading about the, the story of social democracy in Western Europe and about why, um, why it uh, had to engage in all of these different compromises, cross-class compromises, um, become uh, eventually, you know, leading to uh, kind of like the you know, so-called cultural Marxism and stuff like that, that there were all sorts of reasons for that historically, and it played itself out the same exact way uh, th this time around. It was just, it was like, it was un uncanny to me. Um, and so I, I just thought to myself, I was like, this needs to be kind of um, looked kind of square in the face. Um, and uh, what, what I was trying to point out was just that um, like, like you said, the, the idea that we ever could have um, sidestepped cultural politics and focused purely on concrete economic demands, um, I don't see the evidence for that. I would, I would personally like it to be that simple. I think that it's a very, very comforting narrative, um, but uh, that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems to be, um, it seems to be quite the opposite. So I wanted to at least put forth the, the idea that um, we, we, I think, still need to have class priorities and kind of like goals and like actual things that you want to see happen, like whether it's, um, you know, whatever your personal uh, policy uh, favorite is, whether it's universal health care or uh, UBI or jobs guarantee, those things are very, very concrete. And I think that they should be part of the, the political program. But it's like those ideas aren't like so compelling that it's going to cause a, a realignment in, um, in United States politics. Um, other, other things are, other um, issues that are squarely within the, the cultural category of politics uh, do seem to be um, uh, motivating enough. Um, like, you know, uh, for example, I mean, really in, in America, we can't talk about uh, left of center politics, I, it, it appears, without talking about race. I mean, that is what excites and motivates most, uh, most people um, who, who are voting that way. 
Um, likewise, uh, things like uh, patriotism, religious uh, conservatism, things like that, um, those have been the cultural narratives that have unified people. Um, also, and uh, kind of related to a lot of the work that you've done, um, also narratives uh, that fall into the heading of so-called conspiratorial thinking, um, whether uh, it's uh, QAnon, um, stuff about the, the virus, all of that. Um, these things are hugely, hugely mobilizing narratives, um, and they are not directly linked to this or that economic program. So uh, we can and should be able to mix and match here a little bit and see um, see what's out there before deciding before deciding the matter. So um, I do think that there should be kind of a uh, there should be attention paid to which which kind of um, cultural narratives seem to be most consonant with what sorts of voters and what sorts of policy um, uh, uh, goals. But, um, but it can't be dismissed entirely because it's going to be the driver of any successful movement, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, so something that always bothered me, even when I was, um, you know, relatively enthusiastic as a Bernie supporter was uh, some comments he made that someone asked him like how he was going to get his agenda through, like how he was going to actually get uh, Medicare for all passed when, you know, if he had Mitch McConnell as Senate leader, Senate majority leader. And he said something like, well, you know, when we have like a huge crowd of people outside of the Capitol building, you know, demanding it, then that's how we're going to get it passed. And I mean, there were, there are like so many levels on which that's a complete um, politics or, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not even really, a, I would say a form of politics. It's just, <laughs> it's just pure fantasy. No. Um, but I'd say the two levels that, that are most notable are one, this idea that, um, that the real function of street protest um, of that sort is to um, achieve a specific concrete policy um, change, right? Which I, I can't think of a single example of that being the case um, Zero. In, yeah. in any, any recent time. Um, and then the second, maybe even more ridiculous idea in that is that you know, a proposal like Medicare for all would galvanize, you know, whatever a million people or however many outside of the capital. It's just it that that doesn't happen either. <laughs> so unfortunately not. I mean, so and those are in a sense the same point because um, the things that motivate a kind of mass mobilization, which you know, is 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 a very different sort of mass mobilization today than we might have seen at the height of the sort of old workers movement, but, or, or in the civil rights movement. Um, but nevertheless, you know, we, we have seen mass mobilizations in the sense of large numbers of people getting out into the streets. Um, but these are not driven by things like passing Medicare for all. Um, and they're also not really driven by specific policy, you know, 
the demand for a specific policy to be passed by, you know, Congress. It's just, it's, <laughs> it's, right. it's simply yeah. a, a total misunderstanding of the basic reality of both how politics works within the halls of government and how politics works sort of on the streets, if you want to call it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, that, that seems like, um, you know, I, I'd been bugged by that particular statement because it, even when I was, you know, enthusiastically voting for Bernie, it just struck me as clearly completely idiotic. <laughs> yeah. And, terribly naive. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think if anything, you're, um, you know, this recent Bellows pieces, um, I, I found very illuminating because it spoke to exactly what I found frustrating and um, totally unconvincing about that mode of thinking, which I think did reflect a larger set of assumptions among, you know, a group of people who you, or I, you and I might generally be on the same page with a lot of the time, or at least have been on the same page with. Right. So far. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think that's probably a good place to wrap it up. Um, any, I mean, so I will reiterate that I hope people will check out Tom's book, Reality Squared, as well as his recent Bellows article, which is kind of a good, you know, sort of piece for framing the project of the book. Um, anything else you'd like to uh, plug or any uh, closing, closing thoughts? Uh, no, no, I, um, uh, I think that that's pretty much it. I hope, uh, I hope people like the book, especially if, if you're a fan of reality TV and, and left theory and stuff like that. I hope that it's at least, uh, an entertaining read, uh, for you. And I, uh, certainly haven't solved all these problems, but, um, I was hoping that the book could at least contribute to the conversation, start, um, start some new subtopic within the conversation. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, and you can find me um, on Twitter. Uh, it's at Syvology, uh, S-Y-V-O-L-O-G-Y. Um, and there's a link tree there that you can kind of check out my other writing and stuff. But otherwise, uh, Jeff, fantastic speaking to you today. Um, it, was, it was a really great conversation and I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.